If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Blackstone, one of Europe's and the UK's largest landlords under the spotlight. Historic England slammed Liverpool Street Station high-rise redevelopment plans. Battersea Power Station's grand opening boycotted over lack of affordable housing. And could the beleaguered Whitechapel Bell Foundry be about to witness a change of fortunes? My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Hetty O'Brien. Hetty is Assistant Opinion Editor at The Guardian. Welcome to the show. Hello, nice to be here. This week we'll be diving into the world of Blackstone, the behemoth asset management firm based in the US, which is the largest commercial landlord in history and rapidly becoming one of the most influential forces in the UK's contested built environment. Its $320 billion real estate portfolio comprises not only offices, hotels, film studios and data centres, but residential apartment blocks and two- and three-bedroom semis in America and beyond. Last week, The Guardian published a long read, authored by this week's guest, Hetty, investigating Blackstone's rapid global expansion following the 2008 financial crash and the fierce backlash it has been met with from communities. After benefiting from an influx of heavily discounted homes when millions defaulted on their mortgage payments, Blackstone turned from a company with major real estate investments in commercial and office buildings to the biggest private landlord in several European countries. While the company insists its top priority is providing a good service, many are quick to point out that the company's expectation of increasing returns for investors seem at odds with the interests of tenants. Residents of some properties have accused the company of hiking rents while simultaneously cutting back on maintenance and overheads. One advisor to the United Nations has even blamed Blackstone for helping to fuel the global housing crisis, something it vehemently denies. Following expansion in Spain, where it owns 30,000 homes, and Sweden, where it was accused of raising rents 42%, the firm bought up swathes of property in Copenhagen a move which did not go unnoticed to tenants, who accused the landlord of doing up low-income housing stock to parachute in more affluent residents. When unfavourable stories started leaking to the press, it wasn't long before a few residents brought the issue to the Danish parliament, which legislated a new Blackstone law, preventing landlords from hiking the rent on apartments until five years after they bought them. Blackstone is now positioning itself in the US and UK markets as a solution to the growing housing crisis. Last year, Sage Housing, a company owned by Blackstone, became the UK's largest single provider of affordable housing. So, Hetty, 
What's this all about? What brought the story onto your radar? And where did your investigations into Blackstone begin? I was really interested actually in the railway arches that were sold off by Network Rail in 2018. Uh, Network Rail, which is a public sector company in the UK, sold off almost all of the railway arches in England. Um, So that was a portfolio of about 5,200 properties. Um, And the deal was really widely criticised shortly after the sale. Uh, MPs said that Network Rail had sacrificed this really important asset um, for basically kind of short-term financial gain. And so there were these two companies that formed a joint venture together to buy those arches, and Blackstone was one of the companies. Together with this other company, they formed the ArchCo. Yeah, so I guess it was because of where I grew up that I got really interested in ArchCo. My parents live on a street that backs onto this row of railway arches. Um, and it was always this kind of slightly sketchy rundown parade of arches when I was growing up. At the same time, there were lots of like little cottage industries that were tenants in those arches. So there was this one guy who his whole business, it seemed, was just like dyeing felt different colours for a living, which seemed really cool to me at the time. And then um, over the last two or three years, Every time I go back and see my parents, I notice that there's different businesses in those arches and it just seemed suddenly there was this change and you had all of these uh, last mile courier companies popping up in the arches and lots of um, couriers kind of cycling around the area. And it just seemed this really, it seemed like this really visible, notable change in the type of business that was um, occupying those arches. Um, and one of those companies was Gorillas. Um, and so instead of the felt guy, you had these gorillas drivers driving into this dark supermarket that you couldn't physically visit as a pedestrian because it was entirely designed to be mediated through an app. And so obviously that, that sort of business, that last mile delivery company, will be able to pay a lot more in rent than the guy who is dyeing felt different colours. Um, and so then I started looking into Blackstone and they ended up looking at how Blackstone had been buying up housing. And I came across this mention of Denmark. Um, it just seemed like the company had caused quite a stir in Denmark in the way that it hadn't done elsewhere. Um, I think a lot of the time these asset management companies don't necessarily get noticed by the general public. They go onto the radar and it's this big shift in the ownership of um, everything from electricity grids to housing to, um, to, to basic kind of resources, really. And they are being bought up quite often without people even realizing that that is the case. So I thought for a company to get noticed in this way in this small Scandinavian country was just really interesting. That's fascinating. And certainly coming at it from uh, the looking at the railway arches in London, obviously those have been let by Network Rail for, for decades, uh, maybe even for centuries to all kinds of interesting uh, businesses that created uh, a real interesting ecosystem in terms of s- small enterprises in a city like London. Um, why why would a company like that go to an asset manager to run that um, or a similar company? Why why do people go down this route? Why do people think that a company like Blackstone, that's a good solution to a built environment kind of ecosystem like railway arches or whatever it is? I mean, I guess it depends what, what side you're looking at it from. So Network Rail, obviously, it was a public sector body. It wasn't necessarily the most professional of landlords. And, and a lot of the traders in the um, in the railway arches that I've spoken to have also had complaints about network rail, as well as complaints about 
the Arch Co. Um, but I guess from the government's perspective, it was like, well, this company's going to spend a lot of money buying buying out this asset that is actually quite expensive to keep up. And so why don't we basically balance our books by selling this off? We no longer have the liabilities that go along with having that asset, such as having to do regular maintenance on those arches and so on and so forth. So I guess from the government's perspective, that's probably what they were thinking. Yeah, and certainly thinking back to the way it was reported in the media at the time uh, in 2018, it was like Network Rail sells off arches for $1.5 to investors uh, in a kind of celebratory tone as though that was the, the logical, smart thing to do. Um, but obviously, we think about your your long read in The Guardian. Uh, what's the real topic at hand here is residential space, right? And homes in particular as compared to retail and office space. So what is the significance of someone, an asset manager like Blackstone, moving into this field in such a big way? And of course, what does that then mean for tenants living in those properties in particular? There are loads of asset management firms. This, this story focused on Blackstone simply because of what happened in Denmark, but really... It's just one of many. So so I think to understand it as a much wider shift is quite important. Um, but ultimately, I guess it's about the source of revenue. So say if you're like an asset management firm and you, have a, you decide to buy a shopping centre and you have lots of shops within that shopping centre that you'll rent out to other businesses, say Claire's Accessories or John Lewis or whatever, and they'll be renting the individual shops within that commercial space. And so say you decide to put the rent up um, in order to make more money and some people would say that's unfair but at the end of the day John Lewis or Claire's Accessories or whatever big business it is could feasibly put the cost of their products up or sell more products to meet that rent increase but I think when you're talking about a small business say like a car mechanic or a coffee shop they don't feasibly have the same capacity to increase the volume of stuff they're selling and they also can't necessarily put the prices of what they're selling up um, and then I think when it comes to tenants, it's even more difficult because you, as a, as a tenant, don't have the capacity to necessarily meet the rent increase that your landlord is calling for. You can't go and get another job on top of your existing job or ask your employer to pay you more. Uh, so that's where it becomes really problematic. I think you've got a business model that can be quite indifferent and that ultimately has a fiduciary obligation to its shareholders and investors to create this kind of value and that and that collides with the reality that there are limits on the amount of value you can create when you're dealing with tenants so i think the two um, models are sort of diametrically opposed and that's where the rub is in your article you talk about blackstone's operations in the us in spain scandinavia um what what does it look like their operations specifically in the uk and how big uh, a player is blackstone in london's uh, residential market and also like what kind of stuff are they asset managing is this social housing is it private rent is it affordable what is it i don't think they're actually that big in london's residential market in the scheme of things but i do think there are a lot of other both asset managers and institutional investors, by which I mean pension funds largely, that are doing a lot of things in London. I mean, in the UK, you've got Sage Housing, which is owned by Blackstone, um, which is currently one of the largest providers of um, quote-unquote affordable housing in the UK. Um, and that is buying up new build Section 106 properties from house builders. Um, and Section 106 properties to be clear, are the affordable housing that developers are required to provide in new developments. And those will then typically be sold off to housing associations to manage 
and let to tenants on council waiting lists. So through Sage, I know Blackstone is investing massively around Tottenham Hale, um, but I think Sage is also mainly elsewhere in the UK. It's not so much in London. And then you've also got BlackRock, which was founded by a former Blackstone employee and is actually much bigger than Blackstone. Um, And that's investing in a residential scheme in North London Borough too. And then I think you've also got lots of other companies that are investing in residential property. And the key is that this industry is always sort of looking for new asset classes. So increasingly people in the industry talk about this idea of real estate, of the real estate life cycle. So your first interaction with this would be like you go and live in student housing, which happens to be owned by an asset manager. And then you move into a build to rent kind of co-living style apartment block that you share with your young professional friends. And then maybe you buy into a shared ownership flat or you rent an apartment with your partner. And then finally you end up in senior living or a care home. And so um, within each of those sectors, you'll find asset management companies and pension funds investing heavily. So it's this sort of cradle to grave approach to real estate investing. So in your uh, long read article, you're focusing on uh, what happened in Denmark, Uh, the government there legislated. Is legislation the right solution to a problem like this? Would, for example, in a city like London, uh, would this be a realistic uh, solution? Uh, Yeah, no, I think that the legislation path is obviously good because it does slow down uh, the financial speculation within the housing market. But also, it's also got to be coupled with a sustained plan to actually build more housing. Um, I mean, it would be amazing if we had a similar thing happen in the UK, but it just feels like that's very unlikely. Uh, the Conservatives are currently considering you turning on the no-fault eviction ban. So I feel like if that's the level that we're at in terms of legislation, it seems high, highly unlikely that the government is going to take on real estate investors or, or institutional investors or asset managers at any, at any point soon. In fact, it seems more likely that any kind of housing crash or recession that happens um, in the future is exactly the kind of opportunity that asset management companies and and Wall Street landlords would would benefit from. Um, And we saw how that happened after 2008. So, yeah, I'm not really so optimistic about the UK situation, frankly. So it seems like Blackstone is rapidly becoming a household name, uh, whether or not people want it or not. Um, its founder has gifted £175 million uh, to the University of Oxford to create a new Stephen A. Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities. Uh, it's a building that's been designed by Hopkins Architects. Uh, actually looks quite a cool building. Uh, and it's going to be built in the Radcliffe Quarter of Oxford. Um, that's quite interesting. I mean, what does, what does it say about um, our kind of elite attitudes to business and academia Um that the humanities, uh, which is the study of society and culture, uh, is being uh, is being honed, is it housed uh, in a building which is you know effectively the Blackstone Building, you know, the building of asset management of, um, of of highly efficient capitalism. It, it's really remarkable how some of the most luxurious and exciting and well funded buildings are being built in Oxbridge colleges and will very rarely be encountered by members of the general public. Um, and the reason that they get built there is almost entirely because of money and philanthropy. Um, and I guess the the most striking example of this is the Blavatnik building in Oxford by Herzog and de Moiron, which is definitely um, 
quite a remarkable example of what this can look like. If you go around the building inside, it's actually really nice. It's got these amazing cutaway terraces on the roof and this real sense of like textural materials. But on the outside, it's this completely impenetrable spaceship with no street furniture or any, I guess, concessions made for pedestrians or members of the local community who may be just strolling past it. It seems quite sealed off and insular. And then down the road, you've obviously got the Schwarzman Centre that will open in a few years' time. Um, and then at St Anthony's College, you have the Invest Corp building, which is this giant steel tube designed by Zaha Hadid. I think all of these developments are really interesting because they kind of exemplify this moment that we're living in where donations from these really rich philanthropists fund the construction of these really shiny, well-built, very luxurious, very high-quality materials, new buildings at elite institutions, while the built environment elsewhere that most people encounter on a daily basis it feels quite straggling and as if it's been basically decimated by austerity. But I also is like a continuity because Oxford has always been this place and those, those universities, Oxford and Cambridge and others, where rich people try and come and wash their reputations clean by getting their names inscribed on cornerstones of buildings and, and that kind of thing. Government heritage watchdog Historic England has announced it is, quote, deeply concerned over plans to revamp Liverpool Street Station. The plans are designed by Swiss star architects Herzog and Muron. They were the designers of London's Tate Modern and Tate Modern Extension. The AJ reported on the backlash this week following a rare press release from England's official conservation body, which branded the, quote, fundamentally misconceived scheme both oversized and insensitive. Meanwhile, the Victorian Society voiced fears the designs could, quote, overwhelm the 1874 listed station. The development is part of Cellar and Network Rail's plans for a major overhaul of the existing building to create a world-class transport interchange, forming part of a wider £1.5 billion project, which includes a new 16-storey tower above the revamped concourse. According to the scheme's backers, the £450 million worth of vital upgrades to the station will include upgrades to, quote, alleviate access, capacity and overcrowding issues. The project will also transform the passenger experience for the 135 million people who use the building every year. The team insists that a key priority is working sensitively with the station's heritage features and that it will restore historic elements as well as the facade of the Grade 2 listed Andaz Hotel. Herzog and Demuron's plans include opening up rooms such as a hidden Masonic temple and ballroom and providing unique meeting, leisure and exhibition space. The as-yet-unseen designs for the wider high-rise redevelopment, which aims to create a, quote, landmark seven-day-a-week destination, include an oversight block housing nearly 80,000 square metres of offices and a new six-storey Andaz Hotel. A big reveal of the designs for the massive development above the London terminus is set for next month, and a formal planning application is expected to be submitted next year. Um, so, Hetty, uh, what do you make of Herzog and Demuron's designs uh, and the visuals that have been circulated so far? Is it a sensible upgrade uh, or a bit of overdevelopment of a station which just happens to be uh, in a very uh, important economic location? The design looks quite quite bombastic. It reminds me a bit of King's Cross, um, the kind of lattice ceiling that, that was put in there, I think, however many years ago now. But I guess like how it looks isn't really the the real issue here because to be honest, Liverpool Street Station isn't exactly pretty at the moment and it's been heavily developed um, 
around that area. I think the point is more about the inordinate sense of waste. Um, it feels like a real waste of money and of resources. And I think it's really funny, this language of passenger experience, because being a train passenger in the UK, the experience is pretty dreadful, but it's not because Liverpool Street Station isn't flashy enough. It's because I can't use the National Rail Service's website to book a train leaving London without it crashing. And all trains outside of the capital are inordinately expensive. So it just feels like a real waste of money to spend 1.5 billion with all of the energy and the carbon that will involve on a development that really doesn't need to happen. And I, I mean, I think also one of the things is I know that accessibility has been cited as one of the concerns and that's really important. And currently there's clearly not enough step-free access. I mean, just going to that station with a bike, it's really difficult because it's mainly dependent upon escalators. Um, but I just think you could sort that out by installing some more lifts rather than going for this really huge new redevelopment plan and even just creating some more public spaces in the existing concourse by getting rid of some of the shops. It just seems this really topsy-turvy model of capital spending where everything is dominated by this cost-benefit analysis idea that London, and not even outer London actually, but just prime stretches of central London are the most logical place to spend your money because you get the biggest return on investment, even when it means bleeding everywhere else, including its transport networks, absolutely dry. So we're talking about the uh, the fact that Historic England has issued a rare press release criticising this project. Um, there are also some quotes uh, being put out by Victoria, Victorian societies. So their director, Joe O'Donnell, said, it is extremely disappointing that a proposed redevelopment of a major Victorian station has got this far without speaking to us. Uh, especially where public bodies such as Network Rail and TFL are involved. Um, should we be surprised uh, that such a prominent development in such a sensitive location has advanced this far without that many people being consulted or invited to shape the proposals? Uh, or is it actually, someone would say, maybe it's the opposite. You just need to get on and get these designs out there. Uh, you can't. You can't listen to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think that this happens a lot. I mean, Bishopsgate is obviously a place that has been subject to loads of redevelopment and some of it has been really insensitive and really not democratic at all. Um, I'm interested in the idea that these conservation, coming from a conservation perspective, it's almost like a bit of a Trojan horse where you campaign to have something listed, for example, and part of what you're doing is protecting the character of the place, sure, but it's also about using one of the few tools you have to stand up to, to developers in a city like London. Um, and I think the problem with Liverpool Street isn't so much that it's going to spoil the kind of innate Victorian character of the place, because it has, the, the whole area has already been so developed that not, not much of that remains anyway. But it's more that it's the way in which it's being pushed through and the lack of recourse to that property developer first model. Um, so you do have to I guess make the argument on the making the argument on the grounds of conservation is one of the few tools that you have at your disposal to challenge that I think. The £9 billion redevelopment of Battersea Power Station, designed by London architects Wilkinson Air, is reaching completion, with crowds set to flock to the iconic building for its public opening this Friday. One notable absence will be Wandsworth Council's new Labour administration, whose councillors are refusing to attend after raising concerns over the development's very low level of social housing. This is a story that grabbed headlines on local news sites such as Wandsworth Times, South London News, and is also covered by the BBC. 
Wandsworth Labour, which took control of the borough from the Conservatives earlier this year, has long criticised the level of affordable housing in the scheme. Rather than pushing for 50% affordable housing, as was standard policy at the time the planning application was submitted back in 2010, Wandsworth's previous administration struck a deal of just 15% affordable housing, which was then slashed to just 9%. Meanwhile, there are 11,000 families in Wandsworth currently on the waiting list for council housing, and more than 3,500 people considered statutorily homeless. A spokesperson for the council said the authority had been clear that neither the new administration nor senior council officers will accept hospitality from property developers. They added, quote, there are currently numerous live planning applications from Battersea Power Station that are still to be determined, so it wouldn't be right to accept this hospitality. Um, so, Hetty, what's this all about? What do you make of the Battersea Power Station uh, redevelopment? Uh, does it fit in with the local community? And why are local councillors making so much noise over the lack of affordable housing? There's this programme on TV I sometimes watch called, um, I think it's called like Britain's Most Expensive Houses, but it gives you this really fascinating insight into this world of ultra high net worth individuals and real estate and the kind of estate agents who work on behalf of the super rich. And there was this one episode with this Russian plastic surgeon who wanted to buy an apartment in London. And I think her budget was easily in the millions, like five million or something, maybe maybe slightly less, slightly more. And she got taken to all of these apartments by this real estate broker. And there's one in Abbey Road and one in St Pancras. And the one she settled on was Batsy Power Station. I think she thought it had this great sense of community and she could set up an outpost of her plastic surgery company in the basement. So that felt like quite a dark insight into the I guess, the target audience of, of the Battersea Power Station development. But yeah, I mean, in general, it feels just like a, a really egregious example of the direction of, of prime, stru- prime structures of central London, but also, I guess, the kind of limited imagination of real estate developers. I get this feeling a lot of the time, but what they think of as being a really good idea often looks more like a kind of playground of like sponsored content and immersive experiences for really really rich adults so yeah I mean given that there's 11,000 or however many people on the on the waiting list for social housing you can understand why the Labour Council wants absolutely nothing to do with this and is, is making a public statement on it. When we think about that Nine Elms area like um there's so many photos of like politicians going down there wearing hard hats and fluorescent jackets, whether it's like George Osborne or Boris Johnson. And um, it's, it's kind of odd seeing images like this because you think where's the line between the sort of objectivity or the public good of politics and then sort of literally being there with a hard hat with a developer's name stamped on it. Um, what do you think of the fact that Labour Wandsworth councillors are saying we're not going also our senior staffers are not going uh we're gonna we're gonna kind of create a new settlement where politicians don't uh stand there holding hands uh with developers who aren't delivering um the public good um that should be expected from our built environment when it's being invested in yeah i mean particularly i think from a labor council because most london councils the majority of them are labor and a lot of them have a lot to answer for with this kind of emergent strain of yimbyism, um, aka yes in my backyard. Where I, I remember speaking to someone recently who said to me they were a former Labour Council who had left, um, and they said 
um, something along the lines of the property developers lobby is to Labour councils what Wall Street is to Washington, i.e. something that exerts far too much influence over local councillors um, who, who do get into bed with developers extremely regularly. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really refreshing actually to see um, a, a Labour council say, nope, we want nothing to do with this, not in our name. And um, I mean, and also like, it's such an egregious example of that. There's no real way to argue that the Battersea power station development is uh, doing much for the local community, particularly given the such a small slice of social housing. And I, I just feel like it's it's like the pinnacle of that kind of um, failure of political imagination. Um, so so yeah, I'd say it's quite refreshing to see the council say no. A new chapter appears to be opening for the Whitechapel Bell Foundry as the developers who had planned to open a bell-themed boutique hotel on the site uh, have put the building back on the market after an option lapsed to buy the land at the rear of the foundry. Long-time listeners may remember the story of the historic Bell Foundry. It was told by Hetty in her Guardian Long Read and on the London last year. This latest twist in the ongoing saga was reported by local blog Spitalfields Life. The foundry is Britain's oldest factory, opening in 1570 and operating in Whitechapel for 500 years. It's where the Liberty Bell and Big Ben were cast. The business was forced to close its doors due to economic reasons and was eventually sold to US investment group Raycliffe Capital, which planned to preserve the grade listed building and turn a 1980s extension at the rear into a 103-room hotel designed by the London-based 3144 Architects. The controversial plans were bashed by campaigners who had fought for the building to be saved as a working bell foundry. However, Historic England backed the project, saying the proposals had the, quote, makings of a successful heritage regeneration scheme. Hetty, uh, you know the story of this building very well. Uh, what can you tell us about why it has such a loyal group of campaigners fighting for it? And also, um, presumably, those are campaigners who are celebrating at the latest twist in the story. Yeah, I spoke to one of them this afternoon, actually. I got a couple of messages once that news came out and it was really interesting just to see that there'd been this, yeah, this kind of U-turn. Um, it, it feels like a real vindication of a lot of the things that campaigners were saying at the time. Um, and it's interesting because, yeah, it's a bell foundry and the, a bell foundry is not necessarily the most useful thing in this economy, it looked at from a certain perspective, but actually this is more than just a bell foundry. It's this symbol of industrial heritage and in Tower Hamlets, which is a borough that has been subject to rapid change. And so when you stand, stand outside the Bell Foundry, you look to the west and you see the city with all the skyscrapers springing up. And then to the east, you see Whitechapel Road um, with all the kind of heritage of the East End. And so it just sits at this junction between these two different economies. And I think um, what I was, what I found really remarkable um, what, when reporting on that piece was just the, the way that the campaign that formed around the foundry was very it intersected a lot of different communities so you had the mosque uh, its next door neighbor you had the heritage preservationists in spitalfields you had members of the labor council and you had this real coalition of campaigners who could see that if the bell foundry was sold off to become a luxury hotel it would be a sort of nail in the coffin and it wouldn't just mean the end of a single foundry it would also be a kind of signal about the direction of travel in the borough and the kind of city that that London is becoming. 
So Historic England described the proposed redevelopment as the makings of a successful heritage regeneration scheme. Um, so now we've got a building, a heritage building, uh, which is for sale. Um, should we potentially be concerned? I mean, if no one buys it, where's the successful heritage regeneration scheme? What's going to happen? Uh, or could you see something else even more uh, uh, sensitive and inspirational going forward? I mean, it's interesting that you said that about the hotel proposal because obviously when that came up um, and when there was a vote on this, there was also the other proposal which the campaigners have put forward, which I think it was called Saved by the Bell, and it was this really extensive document. Um, They worked with a regeneration charity that specifically works on projects to do with heritage regeneration that has previously done the Middleport Pottery Factory in Stoke-on-Trent which was a massive scheme and they basically saved a factory from bankruptcy and it's still now a working factory where Burley Burley Pottery, I think that's right, is um, made. So there was a really good scheme that was proposed. It's just that English Heritage, Historic England as it's now known, didn't didn't go for that one um, and neither did the council. So I think the hope is that um, now, now that the... The problems and the faults in the former Raycliffe proposal have been exposed in the sense that Raycliffe's put the, the boundary back on the market. Um, it's a really good time to swoop in with that other proposal and make an argument for that. And I think that's what the campaigners are planning on doing. I believe that they're, in, they're already consulting with um, Historic England about this. We're now on to the culture section. Um, exciting things coming up in London at the Photographer's Gallery a new exhibition has just opened it's a retrospective of Chris Killip, uh, over 140 works, uh, a comprehensive survey showing the photographer's work looking at areas in the north of England uh, which suffered rapid change as a result of industrial decline um, absolutely fascinating exhibition runs until February and it's open uh, other stuff on the radar uh, there's going to be a big book launch at Ackland Burley School. Um, it's a new book by called Brutalist Britain, and it's by the legendary architectural historian Elaine Harwood. Um, it's a 20th century society book, and the book launch itself is on Wednesday, the 26th of October, 6.30. Um, so, yeah, get on down there to Ackland Burley School, which is in uh, Tufnell Park, uh, a really cool uh, modernist building in itself. Um, to grab a copy of the book and um, hear Elaine's talk. I'm sure it'll be really fascinating. Um, another so- somewhat amusing, uh, somewhat cultural item on the radar is uh, there's going to be an opportunity uh, to take part in a zip wire uh, going from the roof of the Cheese Grater, that's the Leadenhall building, Richard Rogers building, uh, a zip wire going across to the Gherkin, uh, just across the road, um, which is obviously uh, designed by Norman Foster, Foster and Partners. Um, this event's actually happening in, on the 9th and 10th of September 2023, so it's pretty much a year away, uh, but pre-registration is open, uh, so if we have any intrepid London listeners who fancy uh, ziplining between two London skyscrapers, uh, here's your big chance. Uh, and it's all for a good cause, because it's a not-for-profit event looking to raise a million pounds for Tommy's, the pregnancy charity. Hetty, what's on your radar? What are you looking to see uh, in the coming weeks? I was planning on going after the Peckinplex this weekend, but for listeners, that's not the most interesting trip. So um, I was also maybe thinking there's this like former Methodist chapel called, and they have this thing called the Blue DeWicks collection, um, which I probably pronounced wrong, but there's this Shanghai-based multimedia artist who's done a 
video installation there and it's like turning this gallery and this chapel into a sort of games arcade with various um, flashing lights and videos which sounds quite fun so that's probably what I'm well might be what I do this weekend in addition to the pep and packs. that's all for culture this week uh, Hetty it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the show um, I hope you can join us again sometime in the future it's been great listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.